I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we take the threads from the beginning and we trace them through to the end. For the last 11 weeks, Israel has been on the move. They've been traveling from place to place and even staying in one place for several decades as the old generation passed away and was replaced by the new generation. Each week we read a story of failure, and in every case we saw Israel getting themselves into trouble. Each week we read a story of lust, or pride, or doubt, or rebellion, and each week the failure of Israel began with the tongue and it was through their tongue that Israel repeatedly cursed themselves. This week, as we turn to Numbers 23, we pick up in the midst of the story of Balaam, the prophet of hire who has been hired by Balak to curse Israel. This man from the nations who worships and speaks to Hashem, but who does not count himself as part of the people of Hashem. This powerful diviner has been brought for one purpose, to curse Israel. To curse Israel with his tongue to weaken them and to give Balak an edge should it come to fighting in the future. And so last week we began this narrative. Balaam, this prophet, he says the right things. He claims to only be able to do what Hashem tells him to do. He claims to speak only what Hashem tells him to speak. He even goes to Hashem and asks his input before making any big decisions. And yet we found as we examined this narrative that Balaam, while claiming to be righteous, he harbored a desire to be honored and to be made rich. He sought notoriety that in his profession would mean more clients and more wealth. And in his pursuit of this notoriety, he twisted the words of God ever so slightly. He entertained the question of the serpent in the garden. God did not really mean... God did not really mean that Israel was blessed and that they were not to be cursed. And as a follow-up to the question of the serpent is the accusation of the serpent. God is holding out on you. God is keeping you back from reaching your full potential. He knows that if you are allowed to proceed, then you will be like him, able to bless and curse. And in the entertaining of these questions, Balaam falls for the trap. He grasps for the fruit of the tree and seeks to elevate himself above God. He seeks to take hold of the power of blessing and cursing and to make it his own. And in all of this, the picture that we're given of Balaam in the book of Numbers is one of complete obedience and adherence to what Hashem commands him to do. And yet, there's something just under the surface. There's something unstated going on in this story, something that we read of later in Scripture. So let's open up the book of Numbers and read the remainder of the story, the story of blessing, the story of curse. 
Numbers 23, 1 through 25, verse 9. And Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bowls and seven rams for me here. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam then said to Balak, Stand by your ascending offerings and let me go on, and it might be that Hashem does come to meet me, and whatever he shows me I shall declare to you. And he went to a bare height. And Elohim came to Balaam, and he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Hashem put a word in the mouth of Balaam, and said, Return to Balak, and this is what you say. And I returned to him, and saw him standing by his ascending offering, he and all the heads of Moab. And he took up this proverb, and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, rage at Israel. How do I curse whom God has not cursed, and how do I rage at whom Hashem has not raged? From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I observe him. Look, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who shall count the dust of Jacob, and the numbers of one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like this. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have kept on blessing. And he answered and said, Should I not take heed to speak what Hashem has put in my mouth? And Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place, from where you see them. You only see the extremity, but not all of them. Curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim and the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your ascending offering while I meet over there. And Hashem came to Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak and say this. So he went to him and he saw him standing by the ascending offering and the heads of Moab with him. And Balak asked him, What did Hashem say? And he took up this proverb and said, Rise up, Balak, and listen. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man to lie nor a son of man to repent. Has he said, and would he not do it, or spoken, and he would not confirm it? See, I have received to bless, and he has blessed, and I do not reverse it. He has not looked upon the wickedness in Jacob, nor has he seen the trouble in Israel. Hashem, his God, is with him, and the shout of a king is in him. God, who has brought them out of Mitzrayim, is for them, like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. Now it is said to Jacob and to Israel, What has God done? Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It lies not down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. And Balaam answered and said to Balak, Have I not spoken to you, saying all that Hashem speaks, that I do? And Balak said to Balaam, Please, come, let me take you to another place. It might be right in the eyes of God that you curse them for me from there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. And Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me there, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And when Balaam saw that it pleased Hashem to bless Israel, he did not go as at the other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face towards the wilderness. 
And Balaam lifted his eyes, and he saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his proverbs and said, The saying of Balaam the son of Beor, and the saying of the man whose eyes are opened, the saying of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes open wide. How good are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like wadis that stretch out, like gardens by a river, like aloes planted by Hashem, like cedars beside waters. He makes water flow from his buckets, and his seed is in the many waters. His king is higher than Agag, and his reign is exalted. God who has brought him out of Egypt is for them like the horns of a wild ox. He devours nations, his enemies, and he breaks their bones, and with his arrows he smites. He bowed down, he laid down like a lion, and like a lion who would rouse him. Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Then the displeasure of Balak burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. Balak then said to Balaam, I summoned you to curse my enemies, and see you have kept on blessing these three times. And now flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, and see Hashem has kept you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak should give me his house filled with silver and gold, I am unable to go beyond the word of Hashem to do either good or evil of my own heart. What Hashem speaks, that I speak. And now see, I am going to my people. Come, let me advise you what this people is going to do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his proverb and said, The saying of Balaam the son of Beor, and the saying of the man whose eyes are opened, the saying of him who hears the words of God, and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes open wide. I see him, but not now. I observe him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and shall destroy all the sons of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession, and Seir shall be a possession, enemies, and Israel is doing mightily. And out of Jacob one shall rule and destroy the remnant from Ar. Then he looked on Amalek, and he took up this proverb and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but his latter end is to perish forever. Then he looked on the Kenites, and he took up this proverb and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. But Cain is to be burned. Till when does Assyria keep you captive? And then he took up this proverb and said, Oh, who does live when God does this? And ships shall come from the coast of Katim, and they shall afflict Assyr and afflict Ever, and so shall he also perish. And Bilam arose, and left, and returned to his place, and Balak also went on his way. And Israel dwelt in Shittim, and the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their mighty ones. Thus Israel was joined to Baal Peor, and the displeasure of Hashem burned against Israel. And Hashem said to Moshe, Take all the leaders of the people and hang them up before Hashem, before the sun, so that the burning displeasure of Hashem turns away from Israel. And Moshe said to the judges of Israel, Each one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal Peor. And see, one of the children of Israel came and brought to his brothers a Midianite woman before the eyes of Moshe and before the eyes of all the congregation of the children of Israel, 
who were weeping at the door of the tent of appointment. And when Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague among the children of Israel came to a stop, and those who died in the plague were twenty-four thousand. When we look to the Torah and we think of the topic of blessing and cursing, where do we turn? Usually we turn to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where blessing and curses are spelled out for us in explicit detail. And yet when we examine each of the books of the Torah, we find that this theme is explored near the end of each of the five books of Moses. In Genesis, at the end of the book, we read of the blessings that Jacob speaks over his sons and grandsons, each son receiving their own blessing, and a few receiving a curse from their father. And contained in the stories that surround this final blessing, we read an account of Joseph being cursed by his brothers and others, so that he could be in a position to be blessed greatly, and in turn to bring blessing to a world that's about to go through a curse. In Exodus, near the end of the book, we read of Israel bringing a curse upon themselves by not obeying the commands that they had so recently been given, building an idol and calling it by the name of their God, and ascribing the qualities and reputation of Hashem to this image of gold. And yet, surrounding this short narrative, we read of a great blessing that Israel is being given, Hashem dwelling in their midst with God and man in communion. The book of Leviticus, as I stated earlier, is quite easy to spot as blessings and curses are spelled out in graphic detail. And throughout the book, we read of the curses that will befall those who disobey, and the blessings that Israel has, simply by proximity to Hashem. And then we reach Numbers. This book tells us of Israel's travels as they go to lay claim of the blessing that has been promised to them. And yet the book is full of accounts of Israel receiving only curses. And then here, at the end of their journey, they receive blessings from a very unlikely source. And yet in the end, they end up cursed. Why? Well, let's explore the narrative and what scripture has to say about this narrative and see if we can discover this source of cursing that is found in the midst of this blessing. So as the chapter opens, we find that Balak and Balaam are at the top of the mountain overlooking the camp of Israel. And we discover that Balaam indeed knows something of Hashem. He commands seven altars to be built, and he commands seven bulls and seven rams to be prepared for sacrifice. Balaam indeed knows the association that Hashem has with the number seven, and he knows what animals are acceptable for sacrifice. And ascending offerings are offered on these altars. Now, it is very easy to point to this and declare that, well, obviously Balaam is wicked because he's not keeping the command of sacrifice. See, he's offering sacrifices outside of the tabernacle. But we must remember, while we know that sacrifice is only to happen in the altar in the tabernacle, Balaam and everyone else who worshipped Hashem that was not part of Israel at this time had no idea that this command had been given. And we must not be too hasty to condemn a biblical character for this action, because there are plenty of righteous characters that do the same thing. Each of the patriarchs built their own altars and offered sacrifices on them. Noah built an altar and offered a sacrifice. 
Well, at least happened before the Torah was given. So there's no problem here. But what about after? After we find that Samuel, David, and Elijah do the same thing. They build altars and offer sacrifices to Hashem outside of the tabernacle and temple. And they are not condemned for this action. So let's be cautious about looking to this event as if it were some purely pagan practice. As far as Balaam knew, this was how you offered sacrifices to Hashem. There are a couple of other things of interest here in this opening. Notice that it is on a high place, a mountaintop, that the sacrifice is offered. In the ancient Near East, it was the top of the mountains that were where God and man met. In fact, this was so common that man built their own mountains in the form of ziggurats and pyramids for the gods to come down and to meet them. This is why we find this type of structures in nearly every continent. Second, we can consider that the purpose of Balaam offering these sacrifices is. The simplest textual interpretation is that it's a way to entice Hashem to come down to meet with him. But it is possible that this was seen by Balaam as a sort of bribe? Well, we find evidence later in the story that Balak indeed believes this to be a bribe. And why not? In the ancient Near East, gods were fickle. If you got an answer that you did not like from a god, then simply offer more sacrifices, or more valuable sacrifices, or, as we see later, offer sacrifices in a different place that's more in tune with this particular god. And eventually you'll meet the god's asking price, and then they'll do what you want. We find this sort of thing all throughout scripture and mythology in the ways that the nations deal with their gods. But as Balaam is about to learn, and as he is about to declare, Hashem is not a man that he should change his mind on a matter. But Balaam perhaps doesn't know this just yet. So he is continuing to attempt to bribe Hashem with these costly sacrifices. And we get a very real insight into the words of David here. It is not sacrifice that God desires. He would not come to a man for food if it were possible for him to get hungry. Instead, Hashem desires a broken and contrite heart, humility, and mercy, things that Balaam does not exhibit. Anyway, Balaam goes a ways away, and he meets with Hashem, and Hashem gives him the first of seven oracles. And this blessing is one that has a unified theme. It speaks of how Israel is blessed by God, and so therefore cannot be cursed. It speaks of Israel as a nation that has been set apart from all other nations. It speaks of the size of Israel's population, which was a way of counting blessing in the ancient Near East. And it speaks of the uprightness of Israel. And when we combine these things together, this blessing speaks of one thing. It speaks of Israel's holiness. Their set-apartness. They are special to Hashem and have been blessed by Him. They are set apart from all other nations and are not like all these others. They are upright and their end is one that is to be desired. Israel is holy and they have been granted holiness by Hashem. Well, to this, Balak is understandably upset. He is paying for a curse and what is happening is blessing. But Balaam persists. I can only speak what Hashem has given me to say. And so Balak has a different idea. A different mountain. That's the answer. Take Balaam to another mountain from where he can only see a part of the people of Israel. 
Maybe they had not given enough. Perhaps from a new location and with more sacrifices as bribes, they can convince Hashem to change his mind. Maybe he was just asking too much to curse the entirety of the nation. Maybe just a portion. And perhaps Hashem will be more amenable if they curse just this small cross-section of Israel rather than attempting to curse the entire nation. And so with more offerings and asking less, they'll be able to gain that thing which he so desperately wants. And so they go through the motions once again. And once again a blessing is given to Balaam to speak over Israel. And the first thing that Hashem addresses is the idea that he can be bribed or convinced to change his mind on this. God is not a man that he should lie or that he should repent and turn back from what he's chosen to do. Hashem has chosen to bless Israel, and they are indeed blessed, and no amount of coercion will cause Hashem to change his mind. In fact, Jacob is so blessed that their sins are not remembered to be held against them. Added to this, Hashem is with him, and the shout of a king is with them. What is the shout of a king? Let's continue on, and perhaps the context will reveal this. Hashem is to them like the horns of a wild ox, a dangerous weapon for them to use. And there is no offense that can be used against them, whether sorcery or divination. And they are going to be victorious, and will not rest until their enemies are vanquished. Now, of course, this is imparted through flowery and poetic language, but boiled down, it describes Israel as victorious over their enemies. Hashem with them and fighting for them as their primary weapon. And it points back to what happened in Egypt as proof of this. When Balaam ends, Balak is mortified. Do not curse them and do not bless them. You're screwing it all up. I asked for you to weaken them, and you are only strengthening them. And Balaam answered in the way that he's answered since the beginning. I told you that I can only say what Hashem tells me to say. Don't blame me. And so Balak attempts once again to change Hashem's mind. Let's go to another place, and perhaps it will be right in Hashem's eyes to curse them from there. And so Balak takes Balaam to the top of Peor a name that will live in infamy. You see, these high places that Balaam was being led to were high places of Baal. The final location is Baal Peor, the place that we read of at the beginning of the next chapter, this place where Israel is cursed. But as we proceed, we see that it is not the words of Balaam that caused this curse. Something else happens in the undertext that we need to discover but not yet. Before then, we still have a series of blessings to go through. The blessing of Baal Peor. So they get to the top of Peor, and they go through the motions of sacrifice once again, but this time Balaam knows what is going to happen. He's heard his own words that last blessing. Hashem is not going to change his mind on this, regardless of the number of offerings, and regardless of the location that the offerings are offered at. And so Balaam doesn't even bother to go off alone and to seek Hashem. Instead, we see that Hashem comes and meets Balaam. The spirit of Hashem comes upon Balaam in this moment. The Holy Spirit descends and rests on Balaam of all people, this man who was not quite on his side. And God now speaks directly through Balaam. This third blessing opens with the description of Balaam. 
And this description we discover is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so we can assume that it's true. Balaam is described as a man whose eyes have been opened. He sees. He's not spiritually blind. He hears the word of God. L. He sees visions of the Almighty. Shaddai. Last week I brought up the archaeological find in Deir Allah, Jordan, that mentions Balaam, the son of Baor. And in this inscription, both El and Shaddai are mentioned, although Hashem is not mentioned by name. And here in Numbers, we see the same thing brought up in regards to Balaam. He hears El. He sees visions of Shaddai. Balaam truly is a man who is a spiritually awakened. And yet, his end is one of tragedy and not one like the end of Israel that he mentioned in his first oracle. And this third blessing is one that describes the blessings that Israel stands to inherit. The wadis are like gardens that have been planted by God, a symbol of the great fruitfulness of the land of Canaan, as is compared to the Garden of Eden itself, and not for the first time. Water flows from his buckets, and his seed is in many waters. Again, poetic language to describe unnatural blessings. Water flows from his buckets. Now, this is odd because a bucket is not a source of water. A bucket is a device for carrying water from one place to another. And yet Israel is so blessed that their buckets will be sources of water and not just a tool for carrying it. His seed will be in many waters. Now, waters throughout Scripture is a symbol for the nations, and so this might be speaking of the offspring of Israel being spread throughout the world. But then it might also be speaking of bounty, of produce as well. The seed that Israel sows will go far beyond where it is sown, and they will reap far beyond what they have sown. And then it speaks of the kingdom of Israel. Their king will be greater than Agag. Now, this is confusing, as Agag is the king that is the king of Amalek at the time of Saul. So, this is either a prophetic, and Balaam is speaking of a future time when the kings of Israel are established and they defeat Agag, or Agag is a family name for the king of the Amalekites, one that was used over and over again within the royal family. Then it speaks of the kingdom of Israel being exalted, honored, and lifted high. And to finish off this third blessing, we find that it finishes in the same manner as the second. Hashem brought you out of Egypt and is like the horns of a wild ox for Israel. But this time it goes further. He devours his enemies, breaks their bones, and smites with his arrows. The blessing that is spoken of in this round is not just a military victory, but of absolute and total victory over their enemies. And then it once again compares Israel to a lion. This time, not one who's drinking the blood of enemies, but rather one who is so dangerous that you dare not rouse him while he sleeps. And finally, this blessing ends with the promise that Abraham was given back in Genesis 12. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. Well, Balak has finally had it with Balaam. He is angry, and he lets Balaam know it. And while he does not threaten Balaam outright, he tells him to flee back home. And he puts in this little dig. I was going to honor you, but Hashem, this God you serve, he has kept you from being honored. God is holding out on you, Balaam. 
And Balaam once again responds in the way that he has responded from the beginning. I told your messengers when they came that I could not speak beyond the word of Hashem, no matter what rewards you promised. I will go home, but before I go, let me tell you what Hashem has in store for you. And so begins the fourth oracle of Balaam. This time Balaam opens in the same way that he opened in the last blessing. His eyes are opened. He hears the word of God. He sees visions of Shaddai. He falls down with eyes wide open. And then Balaam describes a character that he sees in his vision. He is not here, and he is not now, but there will come one to Israel. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. And this one will smite the borders of Moab and destroy the sons of Shet. Now, this is not Seth from Genesis, but this is another name that's used only this one time. Edom will become his possession, and Seir will be his possession. Bit of a parallelism here, as Edom and Seir, they're the same place. And out of Jacob one will rule, and he will destroy the remnants of Ar. In some translations, this word Ar is translated as the city. Uh, there's a lot to cover here, so let's start with the easy bit. That last line about R, what is it that's being referred to? Yes, the Hebrew word ear. It, it means a city. But is this a good translation? And to discover this, we can take our cue from the bit about Edom. Previous to R, we read of Adam and Seir, both mentioned as if they were separate entities, but they're not. They are the same place, and this is a bit of parallelism used to emphasize what's being said. So when we get to R, what is happening here? Well, we can turn back to chapter 21, and I think that we can discover the answer from there. Numbers 21, verse 28. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sichon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the masters of the heights of the Arnon. Ar isn't just a word for city. It is the name of a specific city, a place in Moab. And what was it that preceded this bit about Edom? Balak spoke of the one who would come and smite the corners of Moab. I believe that this too is a closing parallel to what preceded the bit about Edom. Balaam is just using another word to describe Moab by using the name of one of its cities. And that brings us to this character that Balaam describes before this that will defeat these nations and rule over them. Well, let's break down this prophecy and let's see what we discover. First off, there are four parts to this prophecy that Balaam utters about this character that we can use to better define who this might be speaking of. First off, Balaam declares that the one who is to come will arrive at a latter time, identified as the last days, literally the hindmost, after or end day. Second, this one who is to come is to be a star out of Jacob. Stars shine, stars are in the sky, and the shining one will be a descendant of Jacob. Third, Balaam speaks of a scepter that this one will wield, which indicates kingship and authority. And fourth, this one will rule over and destroy nations. And if we search scripture from end to end with these four points in mind, we will discover a parallel passage in Revelation 19, 11 through 15. 
And I saw the heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Trustworthy and True, and in righteousness he judges and fights. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, having the name that had been written, which no one had perceived except himself. And having been dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of Hashem. And the armies in the heaven, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that he should smite the nations, and he shall shepherd them with a rod of iron. What do you know? Each of these four themes from this fourth oracle of Balaam are represented here in this prophecy that John gives us of the final days. The one who returns will come from the sky, and he will shine brightly like a star. He is a descendant of Jacob. He will rule with an iron rod or a scepter, and he will smite the nations. This character that Balaam speaks of is messianic, but not the advent of the Messiah in the past, but rather the advent of the Messiah of the future. Perhaps the clearest prophecy of the Messiah in the Torah was spoken from the mouth of a henotheistic prophet for hire. And this closes off the fourth oracle of Balaam. And immediately Balaam goes off into three more pronouncements of what is going to happen to the surrounding nations in the future. Amalek will perish forever. A promise that's as old as the Exodus, but now this promise has been shared with the nations, and we read a part of this being accomplished throughout the rest of the Bible. We read of this in 1 Samuel 15, 1 Chronicles 2, and the book of Esther. The sixth oracle is in relation to the Kenites. This is the family of Jethro that accompanied Israel, and that we read of throughout the books of Judges, 1 Samuel, and 1 Chronicles. And this oracle speaks of their captivity in Assyria presumably alongside the northern tribes of Israel in their captivity. The final oracle deals with Balaam's own people, Eber, and Assyria, as their destruction by the Greeks when Alexander conquers the world. Each of these final three prophecies are events that were accomplished at least 300 years before the birth of Yeshua. And this closes off the narrative of Balaam and Balak here in the book of Numbers. But this does not close off our Parsha for this week. We still have nine verses of the next chapter to cover, and what a nine verses they are. Up to this point, we've been treated to a background story of what the nations were doing to attempt to curse Israel. But we saw that the nations were completely unable to curse Israel. And yet, what do we read of as soon as we return to the narrative of Israel? Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. The Moabites invited Israel to come and to worship their gods and to participate in their sacrifices, and they do. And Israel is joined to Baal Peor, the god of the mountaintop where Balaam pronounced not one but two blessings over Israel. And so once again the displeasure of Hashem burns against Israel. And Hashem tells Moses to take the ringleaders and to hang them before Hashem but facing the sun. They were to be facing east. And what does this signify when a person is placed before Hashem, but is forced to face east? They cannot see Hashem. Their back is turned towards Him. This is a parable for Israel to learn from. 
And Moses tells all of the judges of Israel, Kill the men who have worshipped Baal Peor. Kill those who have turned their backs on Hashem. And despite this order, a man of Israel parades a Midianite woman before all the people and before the people weeping at the tabernacle. And he takes her into his tent right in front of them. One man, a son of Eliezer, sees this and he has had enough. And he takes a spear, he bursts into the tent, and he spears them both while they are in the act. And the plague that had broken out and had killed 24,000 people, presumably in addition to those killed by the judges, ended with this action of Phineas. And that is where the Parsha ends. Over the last few chapters, everything seemed to be going great. Israel was being victorious. Israel was actively being blessed by Hashem, though they could not see it. And yet all it took was some different food and some willing ladies, and suddenly Israel was on the receiving end of curses once again. Balak couldn't curse Israel. Balaam couldn't curse Israel despite how much he wanted to. The only one who could curse Israel was Israel. How did it come to this? First, let's close off our discussion of Balaam specifically, since every other mention of him from this point on is in remembrance of these events. Last week, I read a couple of New Testament passages that deal directly with Balaam, and we saw that in both Second Peter and Jude, Balaam is equated to a false prophet or a false teacher, one who denies Yeshua and denies the ways of the Father, not only this, but who then teaches others to do so as well. But there is one mention of Balaam that I held off on until this lesson. And in this final mention of Balaam in the New Testament, we find something that is only hinted of elsewhere in Scripture. Revelation two twelve through 14 And to the messenger of the assembly in Pergamos write, He who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know your works and where you dwell, where the throne of Satan is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny the faith in me, even in the days in which Antipas was my trustworthy witness, who was killed near you where Satan dwells. But I hold a few matters against you, because you have there those who adhere to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat foods offered to idols, and to commit whoring. Balaam taught Balak how to get Israel to curse themselves. He taught Balak to simply put a stumbling block before Israel, and then to entice them to pursue their fleshly desires. And that's all it took. Back in Numbers 11 at Israel's first stop in the wilderness, we read of those who desired a variety in their diet and how their complaining brought a plague on Israel and that place became known as Graves of Desire. Now here at the final stop of Israel on their journey prior to taking the land, we read one more time of Israel being tempted to fulfill their fleshly desires. Are you tired of the same old manna? Well, we have a huge variety of food over here. Simply come and worship here, and, and you can have this food for yourself. Are you tired of the same old ladies and their prudish ways? Our gods won't hold back on you, unlike Hashem. 
Our gods won't keep you from fulfilling your desires. You can be who you want to be, no condemnation. You can have your heart's desire fulfilled with us. Your God is not advancing you as you deserve. Your God is not providing for you in the way that you expect. No, our gods will give you everything that you desire. Honor, money, sex, food, excitement, power. Well, you can have it all here with us. And to some in Israel, this was tempting. I dare say that to us today, these things are tempting. Give up on God. Give up on what he's called you to do. He is holding you back. You can do more if you do it your way. You don't even have to stop worshiping your God. You can simply worship him and our gods at the same time. And Israel looked around at their experience. They saw that God was holding out on them. He was preventing them from having what they desired. He had held them back for 40 years. And the words of Balak to Balaam become the foundation of the stumbling block that succeeded where his words had failed. You see, Balaam couldn't curse Israel with his words. That was impossible. He had a letter of the law to uphold. But the spirit of the command? Well, that was of no consideration. He could not curse Israel. But he could teach others how to tempt Israel to curse themselves. This is perhaps the most important aspect of this story. You see, Israel was in the midst of spiritual warfare here on the plains of Shittim. There was an unseen enemy who was attempting to weaken and to destroy them, who stood in the place of gods and sought only to make them vulnerable because he knew that their continued existence was a danger to himself. But this unseen enemy was unable to touch Israel. That is, as long as Israel remained faithful and true. So all he had to do was to tempt Israel to compromise. They'd been promised something good, but had not yet seen a bit of it. But here, right in front of them, was a promise of something that would prove to be enjoyable. Sure, it's something that God said not to do, but his promise of reward is not yet seen. Well, this promise of reward is right here in front of you for the taking. All it takes is just a moment of weakness, a moment of seeking to fulfill desire rather than command, and suddenly you are open to attack. Suddenly Hashem is against you. Suddenly the curse of Deuteronomy twelve twenty six through 28 comes upon you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse, the blessing when you obey the commands of Hashem your God which I command you today and the curse if you do not obey the commands of Hashem your God. But turn aside from the way which I command you today, to go after other gods which you have not known. And this temptation we find in Revelation is the one that is perpetuated in the church even after the resurrection. It's one that's perpetuated even today. God didn't really say don't eat that. He didn't really say, don't do that. He's holding out on you. He did away with all of that, didn't he? It's okay. You can do that. This tactic of the enemy 
is one that we must guard against because falling for it will lead to our own destruction. Because falling for it is love of self. But if you love God, you demonstrate that by keeping his commandment. And loving God is life. So derish chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Kai, as we seek life. Shalom. <laughs>